Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, and I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph A. Piper, our current president, the outgoing president. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to be with you. It's been a while since we've been together for one of these Faith and Practice segments, so it's a little refresher to uh, listeners who may have forgotten about this segment or new listeners who have started tuning in since the last one. This is something that we aim to do on a monthly or so basis. Something tells me next month we probably won't get to it for some reason or another. I think we will. A a baby in the Groff family, a conference, a spring break, you know. Um, But we generally aim to do this once a month where we take uh, questions from our listeners and I pose them to Dr. Piper and he gives us answers grounded in scripture and from our confessional Presbyterian reform perspective. Uh, This month we have many questions in front of us and we're going to get through as many of them as possible. But before we We broach the first one. We will open with a word of prayer. Our great God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in your word, that we would know you as you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for truth, for faithfulness, for clarity of sight in order to discern uh, that which lies before us this day. We ask you to grant us your spirit, so that as we turn to your word to answer these questions, we would be enlightened in our minds and that we would see Jesus Christ working through his church in the world today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Dr. Piper, before we dive into the questions, do we have any announcements you would like to share? Well, yes. I'm very excited about the conference next month to which you alluded. We're getting a tremendous response uh, in terms of our registrants. Uh, I think it's very important in uh, a time in which we live when people look down on the church. So this conference emphasizes uh, God's work through the church uh, in ministering the various means of grace. I think it's going to be very important in the lives of the individuals and the churches that are involved. And conference registration is available on our website at gpts.edu conference. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact me at zgroff at gpts.edu or just call the seminary at 864-322-2717. We have over 300 registrants so far. I think I hit 313 today. Um, processed somebody this morning. And we're looking forward to having around 350 to 375 friends students, staffers, professors, speakers with us in about a month, March 10th through 12th. It's really exciting that we've got, at least as of Monday, 51 alumni coming, which yes. I think is a record. Yes, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful providence, and, and we're really looking forward to reuniting with, with some of these guys and many recent alum, but also some far distant ones. You know, I think B.J. Gorell, who has been coming faithfully to the conference for many years, is uh, was in our very first graduating class or maybe second one, second, I think, yeah. and, uh, and we have guys who graduated just this past year who are intending to join us with their families. All right, without further ado, let's dive into our questions, and we're going to uh, start right off the bat with uh, some controversy in a not-so-recent episode at this point of the Theology Gals podcast. Colleen Sharp and Rachel Green Miller addressed the following question, are women more easily deceived? And they did so, they addressed this question first by critiquing something that you, Dr. Piper, wrote 
in your essay on leading in worship, which is published in Little Book uh, here at the seminary, Equipping Preachers, Pastors, and Churchmen. In particular, they attacked your position that, quote, by nature, a woman will more likely fall prey to the subtleties of mental and theological error, end quote. A number of our faithful listeners want to hear from you in giving a direct rejoinder to their evaluation of your comment and the position that you take on the matter. And right at the heart of it is this question, are women more easily deceived than men? Why or why not? All right, Zach. Uh, this was in uh, a piece written uh, on 1 Timothy 2. In verse 12, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So I did say uh, I do say in the article, on the basis of this passage, that uh, there is a propensity in women to be more easily deceived than men. I didn't say that all women are more easily deceived, nor did I say that no man can be deceived. I was trying to uh, be faithful to uh, Paul's language. We need to look what he's doing here. He's saying that women are not, he's not allowing women to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, that would, of course, include public worship. It would include uh, any reading or scripture or exhorting. I think it also would include leading in prayer, which is an authoritative act, or distributing elements of the Lord's Supper. But Paul's uh, grounds are twofold, not just one. So he first makes the grounds out of a deliberately designed order of creation. But the second, and this was Eve's own confession, that she was deceived. So what's Paul saying here? Why does he link this? That's the question that I never heard on the podcast. Why does he link this to the prohibition in verse 12? We have to do that. Whatever interpretation you want to give here, you've got to link it to its immediate context. So the surface meaning is that women are more easily deceived. And then he gives the positive and the positive is that a woman's primary role in the life of the church is going to be domestic. So, of course, there's an allusion here to Eve bearing uh, the seed um, from which would come uh, the seed of God who would bruise uh, Satan on the head. But I think that uh, in the broader context, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith. And so he's putting this into... Uh, a domestic uh, context. Now, I would say some of the things I listened to on the podcast and subsequent things actually illustrates my point. I'm hearing a lot of bad exegesis or non-exegesis, and there's been some good book reviews uh, done as well on some of the books that these ladies have written that point out uh, some of the uh, exegesis. Our, our more recent one uh, where Calvin's quoted to be saying something, and the very next sentence, he interprets it just the opposite from what the writer wrote. Uh, that probably can't be a simply a mistake. <laughs> the next sentence, we're not talking about two pages later, nor we're talking about something that is. Um, I wanted to address this, though, Zach, because I think that it's part of a much bigger problem. 
and that is uh, manifesting in the PCA denomination in Revoice, manifesting itself in the OPC in this new uh, feminist attack on uh, uh, male headship, seen in the title of a book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Which is forthcoming from Zondervan. At oh, this point. it has not come out? It hasn't yet come out. So I, I think the advanced copy. Okay. I think the author received the advanced copy and made that All known right. on Twitter oh, recently, okay. but it hasn't yet to this point as of the recording of this podcast, been published. Now, what's interesting, and this is not an original insight with me, it's one of our pastors here in town. In both instances, what we have is gender blending. Neither side wants to admit that there is an ontological difference in gender. By that, I mean a created difference. There's no real uh, created differences outside of the physical things uh, that we can see. Now, I think that's completely contrary to what Paul says here when he goes from uh, being deceived to the role of woman in bearing uh, children, many other places uh, in Scripture as well. And so I think that we're really looking at a, a much more uh, comprehensive problem uh, in these things. And then I find out that uh, in some of churches, some of these women actually are teaching men's Bible study classes. It seems to me to be a direct violation of uh, Paul's uh, prohibition here in uh, so I'd like to hear uh, from uh, uh, some of these proponents. Obviously, they're searching out what I'm saying, so that's fine. If they hear this, I'm trying to say this uh, in love and fairness, but I'd be glad to interact. One point of interaction that might be interesting to explore right now, Dr. Pipa, is I've heard men rise to their defense and saying, you know, you're blowing things out of proportion with these ladies. They are strong on male-only ordination. And so how would you respond to that, that pushback, even mm-hmm. from friends of Greenville Seminary who, who admire uh, podcasts and some of the material that these folks put out, when they say, well, these ladies, they advocate for male-only ordination, so they must be sound. And I praise them for that. But is that the issue that's here? Paul's not dealing with ordination in First Timothy chapter 2. He's dealing with authority structures in the church. So there are those that have said that a woman can do in the church whatever an unordained man does in the church. Well, that can't be true because an unordained man approved by the session could teach a men's Bible study class, whereas uh, an ordained woman shouldn't. So uh, I applaud them for stopping short, but to allow women to read Scripture in service, uh, to uh, lead in prayer in a service, uh, I think is violating the principles of ordination because those acts belong to elders or men being tested by elders to serve uh, as a teaching or a ruling elder. So, uh, and and the, the more recent remarks are even more, I think, audacious. So, uh, yes, we can commend this uh, issue, but I think that uh, the, the greater problem is the denial of an, uh, an ontological difference between men and women. That will eventually lead to um, ordination and everything else, not that they intend for it to. But if there's no God-given differences uh, from creation outside of the physical differences, um, we're opening Pandora's box, in my opinion. This is a pressing issue in the in in our reformed denominations in this country uh, because of you know the folks the books and the materials that you cited 
in this podcast, but I think that it ties in as well to the revoice theology yes. and the dangers posed by that. At, at root is a, bl- a blending of gender and a denial of, uh, of a fully scriptural anthropology of who man was made to be, man and woman was made to be in the Garden of Eden in, before the fall. Right. Perhaps we can open that up a bit more in subsequent episodes, uh, but I think I think that we've handled that question, given plenty to our listeners to give us follow up on, and we can move forward to our next question. With, with respect to that one, though, we were going oh, yeah. to tie in this other one on Proverbs. Oh yeah, that's right. So Ray Call of Mission to the World, serving in Belize, asks this question from Proverbs thirty-one: Is the Proverbs thirty-one woman to be characterized as a quote? Working woman, end quote. What was the nature of her work inside and outside the home, and how does her example teach us something about what constitutes a virtuous woman today? Thank you, Ray, for a, a very thoughtful uh, question. Uh, not that you meant this, but uh, any faithful Christian housewife I know is a working woman, uh, and their days are as hard as anybody's. And I know you, you believe and uh, understand that. In the first place, what we have here is the ideal woman. And you will note that she is noted for these marks of female piety. Now, one of those uh, is that uh, she sells her products. She has a cottage industry. She is overseeing, probably in this case, uh, servants. Um, She can consider a field and buy it. Um, she uh, obviously is working outside the home for the home. So this is the, f- the first difference I would make here then. Uh, I remember old Buck Hatch uh, saying that in a marriage, only one person has a, a, a vocational calling, and that's the man. The, the wife is the helper corresponding to his needs, so they have his calling. So whatever work a wife does in or outside the home, is for the purpose of promoting the well-being of the home. So she's not on a career track, and she's not doing this for any other reason but to build up her own household. So she's focusing there on her household, and nor does it take away from all that she's doing for her household as she ministers there. Now, as I say, it's ideal. We've got to realize this is is not superwoman. She obviously had um, servants. Uh, to be uh, aiding her in this work, but she was overseeing those servants. Um, But her focus is on her husband. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, supplies belts to tradesmen, strength and dignity her clothing. She smiles at the future, opens her mouth in wisdom, teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Give her the product of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates. So she does this for her household. So I don't think it's at all wrong for a woman uh, to be at work outside the household as long as she's doing that for the household. And it does not detract from her primary responsibility to run the house. Just to clarify the distinction you're making here between doing work for the house and pursuing a vocation or pursuing a career, uh, I think that 
in our consumeristic culture, we tend to view our work outside of the home, even our work as men outside of the home, not so much as pursuing a career or a vocation and a God-given calling, but rather, you know, working for the weekend. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you go to work nine to five, Monday through Friday, not to accomplish any kind of grand calling from God, but merely to put food on the table, to put a roof over your head, to, you know, have a place, uh, you know, room and board and, and to get your kids through college. And it's, it's purely instrumental. And in our reform tradition, that is a, that is a very paltry view of, of weekday work. We are to do all things, whether we eat or drink to the glory of God, we are to work as unto the Lord, right? So, um, I think that's a helpful distinction that you make is that, uh, is that distinction between working for the home and in household management and then working in pursuit of a vocational career and uh, which and what is appropriate for each uh, member of the household. Right. And uh, pretty soon, volume 10 of William Perkins' Collected Works will be out. He's got one of the treatises his own vocation. And I think people will find that uh, very useful. And then w- when I would do premarital counseling, I would tell a couple now, Yes, it's fine for the wife to be at work, particularly when there's no little children to be looking after. I don't think she should be, you know, there are things she could do. She could be a nurse on a special shift or something and, and have small children. But my counsel has always been never live on your wife's income because then when you want her to stay at home, you'd be unable to run your budget. So if her income goes into saving to buy a house, uh, to buy some furniture or things like that, to put up for the children's college, I think that's part of what we're seeing here. It's work that promotes the well-being of the home. But you discipline yourself and your own spending on a monthly basis to reflect the, the, the God-given arrangements in the home, and that is to be dependent week by week, month by month, on the husband's income, and anything beyond that is supplemental. Well, very good. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And thank you, Ray, for that question uh, from Proverbs 31. And hey, thank you, Theology Gals, for uh, interacting with Dr. Piper. Right. We do appreciate it. Give us something to talk about. That's great. Our next question comes from Noah Burchard of San Diego, California. This is a follow-up from episode 57's uh, Faith and Practice discussion of the Trinity. He says, how bad or severe should disagreements on the question be considered? In other other words, how should we regard men who teach some kind of eternal subordination? Then he has a follow-up to that. But let's tackle this question first. Yeah, you know, Noah, I've not not thought a great deal about our response. It's a serious error. I don't think it is a damnable error that it would send someone uh, to hell, but I think it's a God-dishonoring error. And so that would be the minimum of what we would say, is if someone says an eternal subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father, or the Spirit to the Father and the Son, um, they have clearly misunderstood the Trinity, and that will, no, no doctrine in the Bible, no truth in the Bible, particularly truths about God, ever are affirmed or denied in isolation. There will be ramifications then with respect to this. Um, it, it would take away, in one sense, from Christ's economical work um, and the humiliation that he took upon himself, so then we rob him of part of his glory at that point. Now, again, in a confessional denomination, we were having this discussion yesterday here at the seminary. Uh, I, I interact with a person, a Christian I meet on the street. I'm thrilled that they trust Christ. They might be a charismatic. They might have a very man-centered view of worship or salvation, but they're trusting Christ, and I 
receive them, love them as a brother or a sister. I can uh, cooperate in uh, praying for revival and uh, various types of activities with those from a diverse uh, ecclesiastical or theological background. But now if it comes to my denomination and a person who is uh, saying that he believes in the eternal subordination of uh, the Trinity, persons of the Trinity, then I would not want that person to be, because our standards are quite clear, and they could not subscribe to them. And it would be what we call striking at the vitals. It would tear away at the... uh, So again, uh, we would not have someone teach here that way. There are some Reformed seminaries, and evidently where this is being taught. Um, not in Presbyterian circles, but uh, that's dangerous because we don't know where this thing's going to end. Plus, it's just bad exegesis. I have a friend who's a pastor of a PCA church up north, and he said that he described um, Grudem's position on eternal subordination to a Catholic theologian, and the Catholic theologian's response was, is he not a Christian? <laughs> because to believe that uh, yeah. that the Son is in some sense eternally subordinate to the Father is, uh, at least to this Catholic thinker's mind, uh, sub-Christian. It, it, it is, you know, functionally. Uh, well, it is, because the church worked through all of that yeah. 1,700 <laughs> years ago. So if it's sub-Christian, then, would it, would it not be damnable heresy? Well, I'm not ready to go there. I'm not saying that you should I, be I or know. you shouldn't be. I, I'm I just, just posing the question. It is sub-Christian uh, in terms of the received faith of the, of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but all error is, in a sense, right. sub-Christian. And yeah. The question is, then, does it put you uh, outside of... Uh, the pale of Christianity. Yeah. So I, I think this is a difficult difficult thing to sort through, and a lot of good work has been done on it. In fact, I, I would commend our listeners to incoming president Jonathan Masters' uh, two- or three-part series on A Place for Truth, along with uh, Carl Truman. It might have been on the mortification of spin blog. It could have been on Place for Truth. But they did a two- or three-part series, and Liam Gallagher chimed in uh, quite a bit, too, on that same platform, exploring this very issue. And it's been a few years. A mass of of literature has cropped up on it, and all very helpful. But let me just say this. There are a lot of serious errors cropping up now with respect to the doctrine of God. Yeah. In terms of both in, in Reformed Baptist circles and now in Presbyterian circles, uh, impassibility, uh, does, does God have emotions, uh, has God changed covenantally uh, with respect to uh, emotions? This is uh, doing great damage. And so it's interesting that every cycle of generations, different errors crop up again. We must always be vigilant I think it was Dabney who said we must each generation must affirm all the truth over again. Uh, in Rick Phillips' excellent book on Reformation, he makes that point that um, we aren't to ever give up the fight because we are to expect it in every generation. We need to stand and defend the truth as well as pass it on to the generation to come. And this actually ties in in in, in a in a respect to this next question from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina, and Chad asks. Can Satan or demons put thoughts into the minds of believers? We just talked about this in class yesterday. So. We did. And the answer is yes. A couple of theologians would say no. But uh, I would commend people to uh, Thornwell, Volume 1, right around page 77. has an excellent uh, discussion there in terms of what Satan can do in temptation. 
So uh, the distinction has been made that Satan cannot change the faculties. Only the Holy Spirit, by regeneration, can uh, uh, transform the faculties, of illumine the under, enlighten the understanding, change the affections and the will. But Satan can make um, suggestions, uh, Satan or demons, uh, to uh, the mind of the believer. That's a part of what temptation is. So temptation operates on on a number of fronts. For the Christian, of course, it's the, the threefold attack of, the, of uh, Satan, the world, and the flesh. And the flesh are our lust within us. We don't need Satan uh, to be fighting against our lust every day of our lives. But what Satan will do, and oftentimes uh, when we are fighting fairly manfully against uh, these uh, lusts, will cause a certain attractiveness of the world to come. This would be a temptation to the externals, but he also himself can uh, whisper thoughts to us about the pleasure, what we'd be denying ourselves, and that, you know, this, this couldn't apply to me. How many times have we heard Christians say, this can't apply to me? Now, here's another question that Chad asks that we addressed yesterday, um, at least implicitly. What prevents unfallen angels then from sinning? Uh, that's also an important question, Chad. Uh, first, I must make the distinction between uh, an angel who is uh, not part of a race, but individually created all of them probably at the same time, and man, a woman, which are part of the race, all descending from Adam. Uh, because the angels are not a race, they all sinned at one time. Our at least followed Satan uh, into that sin. We don't know. The Bible's not clear. But um, they immediately uh, were damned. Um, and there's no redeemer for them because there can be no covenant head. You have to have a race to have a covenant head. Whereas we fell in Adam, but we are redeemed in Christ. Um, and we are justified, and the Spirit of Christ is indwelling us and beginning this work of sanctification in our lives. We're going to sin, but for us, there is the regular fountain of forgiveness. Our sinning is not as simply moral creatures, but as sons and daughters of God. So our confession after our justification is to God as Father to forgive us and to work in our lives. Well, the angels um, have no deliverance from sin. So the, the wicked angels um, have no forgiveness. Now, the good angels then, uh, they, um, if they sin, they no longer be a good angel. But then we have to go back a step further and talk about election and reprobation because they're called elect angels. And so the angels that didn't fall are eternally chosen by God to this position of holiness. So just then, as God protects us, we can sin but not lose our salvation. If they sin, they would lose their eternal state. So their election means that they can never sin. That was a good refresher from yesterday's lesson in our Creation Man and Sin class. I feel more prepared now for the midterm that is looming before me. <laughs> Our next, our next pair of questions um, are related, though they come from two different people. The first one comes from Josh Enns of Hamilton, 
uh, Waikato, New Zealand. And then the second question actually comes from an anonymous uh, questioner or inquirer. But Josh asks, in the past, I have heard you, Dr. Piper, say that it is good for children to take notes during the sermon, but that you do not recommend that adults do so. Could you please elaborate on the reasons for each piece of advice? And this ties in to an anonymous question. Assuming a pastor has sermon notes that are quite complete, would it be wrong of him to circulate those notes to members prior to preaching? Would it make any difference if his sharing those notes was for the purpose of helping people with English as a second language? All right. Let's get first to uh, Josh's uh, question. Um, And I have said both things, uh, Josh, uh, and here's the reason. Uh, Let me start with the overall picture because this will also tie the second thing. Preaching is, by its very God-designed nature, a verbal act. And there's to be an interaction taking place between the preacher and the hearer. So the problem with uh, Christians taking notes during the sermon is that contact is broken. It's become a Bible study. Um, And so the connection with the eyes... um, the very deliberate nature of the, uh, of the method can be hindered. With a child, what I want a child to do is to learn to listen. And oftentimes a child uh, can best learn to listen by learning to take notes for the sermon, disciplining their minds, increasingly then following the unfolding of the sermon. So that's the general pattern. Now, uh, we're all different. And we all know people that simply listen better by taking notes. So I would never discourage such a person uh, from taking notes if that's the way they best can listen. But I don't like looking out at a congregation, 75% of which have their heads down, uh, scribbling away uh, notes. So um, that's why I uh, do that. And plus, when a child comes to be examined for communicant membership, uh, I want to know they can learn to, they can listen to a sermon, so I want to see their sermon notes at that point to know that they're profiting. If you're not profiting from preaching, don't expect to profit from uh, the Lord's uh, Supper. So again, we've got a uh, dual situation here, because preaching is to be, uh, well, my definition, which I think comes out of Scripture, it's a verbal public authoritative proclamation of the Word of God by the man whom God's appointed to that task. So to distribute uh, detailed notes before the sermon uh, is, in fact, taken away then. It turns it in again to a lecture. Uh, it's no longer a verbal public proclamation. It takes away from that unction that's supposed to come both upon the preacher and the hearers. Uh, and this would apply as well to using overheads, uh, the most that I would ever want to do is I'll put the main heads if, if a church asks for the main headings on a bulletin or if they want to put the main headings on a PowerPoint. Um, uh, but that would be it. Uh, I don't want the outline of the sermon on the PowerPoint. I don't want a manuscript of the sermon put in the hands of the people. So that's the general way. That's because of the theology of preaching. Now, if you've got people in the congregation who have difficulty with language and you don't have a simultaneous or even a, a regular translation taking place, uh, that might be useful uh, at the point of preaching. Uh, with the first group, I would be glad to give them those notes afterwards uh, for them to review then. 
Uh, and that still might be the best way to do it with the uh, uh, English second language people because they're going to learn to listen better by listening to the sermon and then give it to them afterwards, and that will help them. So I, I prefer never to distribute it until after the sermon. Now Spurgeon preached without notes, but then on Monday morning, I think it was, he would uh, write his sermon out and then make those notes available. That's the kind of thing I prefer. And then the rest of England would preach it about two weeks later. <laughs> yeah. I, I met, a, I met a, a good brother, faithful OPC pastor out west, who uh, preached extemporaneously for years. And week by week, people would come to him and say, Pastor, can I have your manuscript or can I have your outline or what have you? So he, he decided, you know, this is putting so much of a burden on him for preparing that thing afterwards for them to study, that now he preaches from a manuscript. He actually distributes it before the service so folks can read along while he's preaching. Um, though if you didn't know that, you're just sitting there, you wouldn't, you wouldn't guess that that was what was happening. Um, but it still takes away from the foolishness of preaching. Yeah. I think you make good points, Dr. Piper, on that. Uh, another question from Anonymous. Should a teaching elder discourage members from referring to him as pastor? Uh, no, I don't think so. I find it a, a bit folksy when you Pastor John or Pastor Joe. Surely not Pastor Jill. <laughs> no, um, I would rather be called pastor than reverend. Reverend is a title that I think is uh, not appropriate, uh, and so I try never to use it. So uh, I think the idea of pastor uh, really gets to the man's relationship to uh, the congregation. And so I, I, I wouldn't discourage it. Thank you. And thank you for the questions, Anonymous. Good practical questions for faith and practice. Our next question comes from Israel Quaresma of Belo Horizonte, uh, Brazil. Uh, Israel, always good to hear from you. And he asks, in the second commandment, how can we understand the words, quote, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, end quote. Is the Lord prohibiting the making of images of any kind, or is he prohibiting merely depictions of the Godhead? Thank you, Israel. Good to uh, hear from you. To understand the prohibition, we need to understand the or, or this part of it. Uh, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. Now, the idol here is a reference then to uh, a representation of the divine being. So we could say an idol or if any likeness. So whatever the likeness is, um, in heaven, uh, earth, or the sea, we are to make no visible representation of the Godhead. Now we, can, we know that first because of what the, the uh, term idol means, uh, but we also can know it uh, because of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, in the tabernacle and in the temple, uh, they were decorated with art. Cherubim, palm trees, palm granites um, were decorating both of those institutions by the order of God. So obviously art's not wrong. Religious art then cannot be wrong as long as we do violate by making images of God. Uh, art is a gift of God to us. Um, Zach looked up uh, Calvin's Institute's uh, book one, Chapter 11, Section 12, The Functions and Limits of Arts, a very useful discussion. Calvin loved the liberal arts uh, and had great appreciation for all forms of them. Uh, 
uh, but would be dogmatically opposed to any representations of God physically or mentally. I recently listened to another podcast, and they discussed patronage of the arts. And the hosts of the podcast seemed to, um, it made me a bit uncomfortable, put me in some discomfort, seemed to suggest that it is imperative, it is a Christian duty to be patrons of the arts. Now, their guest speaker made the excellent point that we all are, by default, patrons of the arts. Whenever we purchase anything or decorate our homes, we are, in some sense, patronizing the arts. And so we just need to be intentional about it, but it I don't know that it's a Christian duty. How far would you say a church might go within reason and allowability, according to Scripture, in formally patronizing the arts, commissioning works of art for decor in the church building or otherwise? Do you think there's any place for that in, in church life? Let's first define what that person, if you can, meant by patronage. Which person, the guest or the host? The, the the host, because when I think of patrons, I think of a financial support of artists. Yes, that's what the host meant. Okay, so uh, that would be a matter of Christian liberty and stewardship. And there are uh, there are many good things for which a Christian might use his money. Some will want to use their money for the political party. Uh, some uh, patron of arts. When we lived in Houston, uh, we were the recipients of a wonderful system where the private industry were the patrons of the arts. So we had great art, uh, plays, ballet, symphony. They eventually built a, a, an opera house that would rival anything in Europe. But it was not coming out of the taxes. It was, it was coming from the various businesses and the oil industry and whatever, that kind of patronage. If an individual is wealthy and they want to leave uh, uh, money or they want to help support uh, the arts, uh, that's their liberty as long as the, the foundation of all their charity is the Lord's house and people. Now, the you so then the second thing would be: should the church commission original art? I think is what I'm hearing you say. That is what the hosts of this particular podcast seemed to me to be advocating for. Now, the guest that they were interviewing didn't go that far. He he said essentially exactly what you said up to this point okay. within let's, allowability. Let's. Um, a second term to define then is arts. So should a church commission uh, a musical piece? They have. They have. And um, and that what hymns are. That's right. <laughs> and should we not pay these dear people for writing these hymns? Absolutely. Okay. So um, the things that are right at the purpose of the church, so the church should be supporting the students that come to seminary mm-hmm. uh, much more than commission a portrait. Now, um, the church is not well served with uh, portraits hanging around our stained glass windows. The, the simplicity of the place of worship is, uh, is very important. So the church's church, I think, needs to, if she's going to pay money for something, it needs to be something that is essential to her role. So, for example, now, when I pastored in Houston, we hired uh, a brilliant architect, and we're blessed. Um, and what he was able to do and, and to put into uh, wood and glass our theology of worship and the purposes of the building. And uh, so we built this building, a simple building, but we had to pay good money to do that. We commissioned this architect uh, to do this. But that was our purpose. This was where the church was going to meet. He designed a building for preaching, congregational singing. Um, and uh, we did that according to the stewardship that we determined at that particular time. 
but to go beyond that and to or commission people and and, and and we also commissioned a man then to build a, the special furniture. So the pulpit and the communion table, the baptismal font, were all made from from beautiful wood. Um, didn't have to be, but that was part of the entire picture. But to, to go beyond that and say, well, let's just pay Joe here to paint a um, portrait of the pastor. We can hang it in the fellowship hall or whatever. I just think that's not the church's responsibility. Again, we have to distinguish between church and Christian. So if a Christian with the session's permission says, I'd like to have a portrait of the pastor to hang in his study or in the hallway, uh, may I hire an artist to do that? Uh, the elders are free to say yes or no, and that person is surely free to, to do that kind of thing. So again, we've got to think of the church as, as the bride of Christ, the institution, the visible church. Let me say not the bride of Christ, the visible church. What she should be commissioning would always have to do with her immediate God-given activities. I think that's extremely helpful. Thank you, Dr. Piper. I, I kind of just threw that on you. That wasn't on our list, but it was on my mind, and I think you handled that ably. Our next question comes, again, it has to do with art. It comes from Jonathan Johnson <laughs> of Consett, County Durham in the United Kingdom. Is adult coloring, and that's coloring with a U, a legitimate activity? I've heard it criticized, and that's criticized with an S, as a children's activity. Or is it an acceptable way of relaxing and engaging in artistic expression, especially for those of us who are less talented in the creative arts? I don't mock British spellings. I wasn't mocking. I was pointing it out. (laughs) I was was celebrating it, Dr. Piper. You were reading into what I was doing. Well, nobody needed to know. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, yeah, this was a new one for me. And by the way, we've got a number of listeners uh, up in that uh, north uh, east area of England. I, one guy that uh, listens to the podcast regularly from Hexham came to a, a noon a message that I gave and I preached down uh, in Durham uh, as well. Um, adult coloring was new for me, although Zach, who is of a different generation, tells me it's quite common. Uh, I have no problem with it. I surely can't uh, draw. Uh, so if I could color a picture and make it look halfway decent, I think I'd be, I would be pleased. So uh, is it acceptable way of relaxing and engaging in artistic expression, especially for those of us who are less talented in creative arts? Well, I, I see no problem with it. Uh, color for yourself, color with your children, color with your grandchildren. Uh, it surely must be um, uh, relaxing if you don't get uptight about staying in, within the lines. Yeah, that's right. I color with my son uh, every week. Multiple times, and the same way with these, uh, you know, painting pictures by numbers. We make fun of that in terms of, of rote type things. But a person can paint a picture by number and make a pretty picture. Bless them. And you know, usually that's a, a stepping stone to being able to do so it without the is. numbers. That's right. And it's a useful pedagogical tool um, while also producing something of lasting value. And Grandma Moses didn't know that she could paint until she was very old. What was that? Grandma Moses. Wasn't that her name? Who's Grandma The Moses? primitive artist that only in her very late years started making uh, primitive art. Oh. When it, was it Grandma Moses? I don't know. I, I know nothing name. about what you're talking about. So but <laughs> that's not the first time. Won't Let's do the, the other question from uh, the northeast of England. Uh, also, well, that's preached. also from Jonathan. He submitted a, a pair of questions afterwards. He said, I greatly appreciated Dr. Piper's ministry yesterday, but I did not understand the reasons for asking us to stand for the call to worship. Could he please explain... Does he consider this a wise and profitable form, or does he believe it is commanded? Let's start with the end, wise and profitable form. 
uh, forms, and Calvin has a good development of this in his section uh, on worship. Uh, forms are things revealed in Scripture, but not required by Scripture. So standing uh, for the reading of Scripture uh, is a form in Scripture. I, are we sinning if we don't stand? No. But to stand for the call to worship, to stand for reading of Scripture is a good form. Uh, and forms are much more important than many people in our Reformed circles uh, realize. God didn't save us as disembodied souls. He saved us as people. And thus we are to worship him as a person. We are to worship him with our bodies. Therefore, posture is very important in worship and helps us worship God better. So standing for reading of Scripture, uh, standing or kneeling uh, for congregational prayer, uh, standing for the call to worship, uh, these are things that help us uh, worship better. And that's why uh, we teach them, and that's why we, we uh, when we're out and about, why we use them. Now, would you say that they fall into adiaphora, or are they more important than adiaphora, but not quite to the level of elements? Where would you well, draw distinctions? Well, adiaphora would be something of which Scripture is silent. Those would be circumstances. Like so, what time to have the service? Yeah, are you going to have hymn books or overhead? Are you going to sit in pews? Or? Incandescent lights or fluorescent lights? Yeah, okay, so um, form would be the liturgy. We know there's liturgy in Scripture, Uh, and so how are we going to put this service uh, together? Uh, Everything in there must be an element or a circumstance. Uh, But uh, forms are not adiaphora as circumstances are because they are seen in Scripture, but they're not mandatory. He also asks this regarding uh, worship. I understand to be Dr. Piper's position that only an ordained minister of the word can preach and that other men exhort. Have I understood this correctly? Could Dr. Piper please elaborate on the reasoning? Yes, uh, Jonathan, you did understand me uh, correctly on that. This gets back to that theology of preaching. And that definition of preaching right. you gave. Definition of preaching, that it is verbal public authoritative proclamation of the word of God by the man of God. Uh, that uh, one of the primary texts for that is Second Timothy four, and the other is Romans ten. And in Romans ten, after uh, Paul gives the uh, great gospel promise in verse thirteen, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He then asks a series of rhetorical questions: How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? So then the Savior must be before them. Second question: How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And I'm glad that the New American Standard finally got this one corrected now in the 1995 version. That is the correct grammar. And I'm shocked that so many uh, translations have missed that. Um, so what's being said here is that when um, the Word of God is preached, Christ is speaking with a living voice. How will they hear, third question, without a preacher? And this is the verbal, the, the noun form for the verb preach. And then the, fifth, the fourth question, how will they preach unless they are sent? And so here we see that preaching is this authoritative act by which Christ speaks through the words or the work of a preacher. Now in 1 Timothy 5, Paul makes this distinction with respect to preaching. So he says in verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now we have this 
word that Paul uses a lot in the uh, pastoral epistles, melista, especially or namely. I prefer namely here. Elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, namely those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing the laborer is worthy of his wages. And he goes on to talk about how one actually would handle an accusation against a minister of the gospel. So here a class is distinguished of elders who in addition to ruling with all the elders has this particular function of uh, preaching and teaching or what Paul will say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, until I come give attention to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and instruction. And that's a matter of office. Or in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word uh, with further commandments. And then he says, um, be watchful, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The work of an evangelist was Timothy's office as an evangelist. This was the ministry that was given unto him. And so preaching is to be the authoritative act of the man set aside by Christ to that act. So historically, we've made this distinction that, yes, ruling elders occasionally may do uh, pulpit work. I think it's much more profitable for a ruling elder to exhort than to read a sermon, as is done in the Dutch churches, and a man being prepared for a ministry to test his gifts when he's licensed. But we want to distinguish between the promise of Christ. Christ's voice is not going to be heard as a living voice when these men uh, do this. There's still uh, biblical authority. They're doing it under authority. There still will be blessing. But it's that very unique thing that um, has been spelled out by the Reformers, by Calvin and the Second Helvetic Confession, um, Pierre Marcel and his great book, Relevance of Preaching, that we really push here at the seminary. So that when the lawfully ordained man preaches, Christ is speaking with a living voice. Thank you for the question, Jonathan. As one who was licensed to preach and yet only technically allowed to exhort in Calvary Presbytery. I think about this issue often. In fact, every time I ascend to the pulpit. So that was a helpful question. Our next question comes from an anonymous uh, inquirer from Texas. How should an adult son encourage his father to use the means of grace more diligently? Uh, prayerfully. And I don't say that with tongue in cheek. When we want to see these kind of changes, they always are going to begin when we are pleading with God on behalf of the person uh, in whom we want to see the changes made. Uh, and then uh, with uh, suggestions, uh, Dad, you know, really want to encourage you to you know, read the Bible every day, get into that, lead the family in, in, in worship or whatever. Um, so he used to do so with respect and uh, prayer uh, and then just as a woman is not to nag the husband, neither should the uh, adult son uh, nag his father. He must always treat him with respect and honor, but uh, try with positive encouragements to uh, help him along. And things like, you know, are there things I can do to help you? Or, you know, here's a, a book I found to be useful, lots of positive helps too. Our last question for this podcast comes from Isaac Overton of Melbourne in Australia. 
Isaac, always good to hear from you. He says, do you think it would be wise for a teaching elder to be involved as a member of a conservative political party, not to run for office, but to have a voice in the organization and for outreach purposes? On the one hand, I don't want to do things that would um, discourage uh, a progressive from coming uh, to the church where I'm preaching. But what I do as a private individual, at least up to this point, and I'm I'm glad to be corrected, although I don't guess I'll ever pastor again. I was involved uh, in Houston, had a lot of good contacts there in, in terms of that. And that was because of things like pro-life and pro-marriage uh, agendas that at that particular point, uh, these were really uh, crucial issues for, the, for that party. So uh, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's something I'd work out with my elders. Um, that, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think about my doing this? If they give you the green light, then okay. If you do it in conscience, and if they ask you not to, then respect that. I, I think that um, broadening out the question a little bit, let's lay aside the political party aspect of this, and let's replace party with cause. Um, the pro-life movement is a political cause in this country because of it deals with resources, allocation of things, life, mm. justice, and all those Good things. Point. And um, And there are many, many evangelical pastors who are involved in the pro-life cause. And if the, the Democratic candidates for president are to be believed during this election cycle, that places them squarely outside of the Overton window uh, for the Democratic Party at all. That if you're pro-life, you cannot be a Democrat, period. Um, and that, that's just out of the horse's mouth with Bernie Sanders and uh, this latest Democratic presidential debate. And so then, by necessity, if you're getting involved in a pro-life cause, you're going to be regarded as getting involved in a conservative cause. And surely that's allowable for a pastor. Why not then a political party that has that as a mainstay plank in its platform. Right. Um, I think this is a good question, one you have to work out. I appreciate Dr. Pipe's wisdom in deferring to your local elders to, to guide you and advise you in that. Um, but I think it's something for all of us to seriously think through. And, and one more distinction so we don't assume that people know this. We're only talking about an individual. The church should never be involved in a political cause. The church yeah. should never promote a particular candidate. The church may tell the people, we think that it, this issue is very important um, and you should carefully weigh uh, uh, the social issues of abortion and gender and such as you make your choice. Uh, what we did in Houston was a voter guide was prepared, and it would show every candidate's position on every issue. So we didn't uh, ever endorse a candidate. We put that out, the voter guide, which was actually prepared by pro-life people, uh, but it was an honest appraisal of each person's own words of what they believed, and that just gave our people some uh, intelligent. You know, we just had a, a sheriff's primary and runoff here, and I didn't have the foggiest notion. I was out of town when a lot of it went on uh, for him to vote because I didn't know the positions of, of any of these men as, as, as sheriff. So it's very important that we do that. But I would never want to do something. I, I will pray for – I prayed for President Obama when he was president. I prayed for President Trump. I prayed for the conversion of both of them uh, from uh, the pulpit. Uh, because I believe the Bible commands me to do both of those uh, things if the president does not appear to be uh, a converted uh, person. Would it ever be appropriate for a pastor from the pulpit to not not to endorse a particular candidate, but to instruct his people that 
it is a danger to throw support behind a particular candidate. So the opposite of an endorsement. I, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. All right, I'm just posing the question. Yeah. Just curious what your position is. We're on about that. the gospel, and there might be 10 progressives there that day that uh, will never hear me again if I did that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll preach against abortion. That's probably driving me out anyway. But <laughs> Yeah, I think functionally that would have the same result. Yeah. So I... I don't know. Those are those are important uh, in, intersections between faith and politics. They're there unavoidable. Are. When I was uh, studying at a, another school up north, a reform school, um, I was a, a naive boy from the south, and I was a bit shocked to see that some of the professors actually had uh, bumper stickers for the very liberal uh, candidate for the presidential election. I wonder if that would still be the case today. I don't know. I don't know. I think the antithesis is pushed more and more. I just got a question today I wanted to answer on here today, and it slipped my mind, with respect to Ash Wednesday and Lent practices. Um, And that is, uh, how did the whole idea of Ash Wednesday and Lent find its way into the PCA? And do we know how is this to be seen in light of regular principle of worship? I don't know how it came in outside the fact there is a uh, in certain circles in the PCA, there's a, a real um, predilection towards the practices of Romanism. And um, so I was shocked when I, I first came across this in, in the PCA, but it is happening in some of our churches. It is pagan and superstitious. It is contrary to the regulative principle of worship. Now, one thing I'll say about how it came in, there was an article back in the 70s in Banner and Truth that I need to look up that says that um, the farther a person's heart is from the Spirit, the more um, liturgical things they begin to do and introduce into worship. And, you know, if we're, if we're mortifying sin and properly repenting, which are internal and spiritual acts, um, we would not be resorting to these uh, meretricious uh, external things that are part of paganism. We'd instead be delighting in the beauty of God in our Reformed liturgy, which is biblical order of worship and practice. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Thank you, Zach. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit us at gpts.edu. And in particular, take some time to explore our conference at gpts.edu slash conference. We would love to have you join us on March 10th through 12th for a special conference focusing on the theme of the church, the mother of God's children.